Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to have Tosh Berman in conversation with Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman has been listed as one of the top 10 most stylish men in America by GQ magazine. He is an actor, musician, and screenwriter who dramatizes the life of the mind in all its pathos, neurosis, and glory on Jonathan Ames's HBO show, Bored to Death. He makes being a writer look so easy. Um, now, I know Tosh Berman as a beloved regular here at Skylight, and every now and then I do see him out in the wild and I enthusiastically wave, but he's never once seen me because whether he's um, walking down the street, at a cafe, or at the movies, he has always got his face in a book. And I think that's a wonderful quality in a person. Um, Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World, is his third book. Of course, some may wonder what it's like to have a world-renowned famous artist for a father. I think it gives you incredible insight into what fame means, the dedication it takes to get the work done, and the difference between the artist and the individual. I also think it's fun being cool. Like, yeah, man, I'm cool. I was born cool. I've been practicing a really long time. Um, some may wonder what it's like to work at one of LA's premier bookstores for nearly 20 years. I think it gives you a chance to interact with um, some of our era's most um, exciting artists, actors, musicians, and directors. Um, in this city, you get to see all the good ones, the ones who read. Um, from Book Soup to Beyond Baroque, as a poet and as a publisher, Tosh Berman has enriched the culture of our city for a very long time. This memoir is his third book, and my goodness, it has been warmly well-received. It has been called sweet, affecting, intimate, exciting, exemplary, uh, enviably glamorous, well-written, fast-moving, candid, funny, often disturbing, exotic, bohemian, resonant, sublime, vertiginous, melancholy, highly amusing, often hilarious, keen, sly, informed, valuable, exquisite, eccentric, and fascinating. Let's please give them a warm round of applause. Hello. Hello. <laughs> um, I study, I suffer from uh, social anxiety and I crave on it. The panic, the sense of fear is something that um, <laughs> something, something. <laughs> Something 
something. <laughs> something. 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 I got it. I'm going to do a brief, a very brief reading, which you give, hopefully will give you the flavor of the book. And then we're going to have a, a, a little chit-chat afterwards. A Note on Wallace Berman, February 18th, 1926, February 18th, 1976. My father, Wallace Berman, was an artist or I should say he is our artist. Though his body is not here anymore, his art is very much part of this world. He considered the father of the California Art Assemblage movement, but he also was one of the first artists to work with a photocopier, specifically a Fairfax, which was a wet chemical process copy machine for office workers. Wallace got a hold of one and eventually modified it to make art. It became his brush, canvas, and camera all in one. He also known for his art and literature journal, Semina, which was handmade, individually numbered, and signed, and only given out to friends or people he admired. He was a pioneer of DIY publishing without a thought of financial profit or concern for the art market. He also never left the medium of sculptures making works on rock and boulders. He was a charismatic figure in the arts landscape from the 1950s until his early death in 1976. I never believe it was a coincidence that, he, that he's one of the faces on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, or that he appears in the background of Dennis Hopper's Easy Rider, or his appearance in Andy Warhol's Tarzan and Jane Regained, sort of. Wallace never gave interviews to the press, nor did he like talking about his art. He did art and only did art. He was a family man, but that doesn't adequately express who he was. It's my hope that this memoir will reveal not only yours truly, but also the presence of Wallace as a father, the Batman to my Robin, as well as the constant misery and disappointment of him not being here but we do have his art, and he does live in my book. I'm not going to read that. I'm not going to read that. I'm going to read this. I have 50 chapters in my book, and um, you can read it in, in order, like chapter one, two, and three, or you can just like pick up the subject matter. There's no tricky titles. There's no mm -hmm. like misleading name of chapters. So this one's called Secret Headquarters. As a child in San Francisco, I became a fan of Walt Disney. And I want to read this because Walt Disney is actually from this area. He's from the Los Feliz area and the first Disney studios. And within a mile or walking distance, he invented Mickey Mouse here. Mm -hmm. So as a child in San Francisco, I became a fan of Walt Disney without, in actuality, seeing any of his films or cartoons. 
I mostly knew his work through the Mickey Mouse Club and Zorro TV shows. Also, my grandparents, Dodo and Martha, bought me, brought me, bought me board books, and they were actually Disney-related. Being a child of the early 1950s, I couldn't avoid the world of Disney. It was virtually impossible. I never had a love for the Disney cartoon characters, but Zorro had a huge appeal for me because he wore a mask and seemed to be very soft man when he was Don Diego. I loved the duality of the feminine man and the male mask hero. From a young age, I was always attracted to comic strips and comic books with a masked man or woman. Looking back, it was almost a sexual mania, but I liked the idea of someone hiding his or her real identity from the world. In my imagination, I often thought myself as Tosh, but a Tosh whose real identity was a masked figure fighting for good or evil. I also needed to have my place and I needed time to be alone. I get physically and mentally drained when dealing with the public or even another person. Some people have to be with more than one person or a group on a regular basis. I am not one of those people. For me, the mask serves as an excuse to run into the world but remain hidden from the populace. In an odd way, the masked Tosh is the real me. I imagine the writer Tosh is the, mas the masked Tosh. The everyday Tosh is a character I made up to deal with everyday issues or social obligations. I learned how to read early via comic books. I was attracted to the illustrations or artworks more than the stories themselves as well as to the paper stock and the scent of the comics. There was something so fragile about the newsprint they used at the time. Nowadays, the comic book page is of higher quality, but in my childhood, it could easily tear or yellow if placed in direct sunlight. I would go to secondhand bookshops and raid their comic book section. The copies I was attracted to were the ones that weren't taken care of, bent pages, loose bindings, the ones that had the thoroughly red look. Comic books at the time were meant to last forever. They had a decaying aspect that I found quite beautiful. There was a textual pleasure of holding an old comic book and even smelling it. The scent of an old comic was a combination of mold, due to dampness, I imagine, and ink. I was attracted to the event, the, oh, excuse me, I was attracted to the advertisements in the back of comic books for venturesome items, such as a log cabin. My dad bought me one through one of the ads. In the illustration, it looked relatively large, with a beautiful, realistic drawing of a boy around my age standing by his new log cabin home. I remember the child in the ad was I remember the child in the ad was wearing a Davy Crockett outfit and, and coonskin cap. The way it looked in the ad, I imagined I would live in this log cabin all by myself. Perhaps I would have to hunt down animals for my food. The only animals I had at the time were my cats, and surely I didn't want to eat them. But in my imagination, there were wild boars and maybe a cow or two in walking distance from our house and my soon-to-be new log cabin residence. When the package arrived at our Beverly Glen home, 
It was one of the happiest moments of my life till I opened the box. <laughs> the cabin was a large sheet of plastic with a design on the outside that resembled a log cabin. What you had to do was attach it to a large table and then go under the table. <laughs> I was disappointed. <laughs> In Beverly Glen, I'm jumping around here, so look, I'm a really good editor, so I can go from one section of the chapter to another, and it seems seamless. <laughs> so now, in Beverly Glen, I had my secret headquarters, which was a space that was entirely mine. I must have gotten the idea from the comic books. To be more precise, I saw the hideout as something between Batman's Batcave and Superman's Fortress of Solitude, a fantastic name for a secret headquarters. My fortress was in the backyard underneath some growth from a tree. In this space, I hid some stuff, most likely a toy gun and other toy weapons. No one knew about this location, and the fact that it was 10 feet away from the back door somehow made it more of a secret place to me. And believe me, this location was a total secret. Well, I'm sure my parents knew it was there, but they respected that it was a secret and never mentioned among themselves in conversation in, some, in case the room was bugged. I spent a lot of time there, and to this day, I haven't forgotten the essence and scent of the greenery and the big tree that covered the area. It was a tree with large limbs full of green leaves that touched the ground, yet left a beautiful space to walk into. Perfectly refreshing, especially on a hot day, and dreamlike as well. It was the first location I thought of a truly and entirely mine. I moved some of my books in there as well noting which ones could last in the outdoor weather. But mostly, I would enter and just sit there and let my imagination go. It wandered everywhere, but always came back to that place, and a lot of the time I imagined myself designing the interiors of the space, though I enjoyed it as it was, uh, though I enjoyed it as it was, wild and it always seemed to me right. It wasn't as grand as the Bat Cave or as odd and cold as the Fortress of Solitude. But nevertheless, it was a place where I could go and be by myself and not be bothered with the evil forces out there on what was known as Earth. To this day, I think of my house that I live in now as a version of that secret headquarters. I used to imagine my father was a crime fighter Excuse me. I used to imagine my father was a crime fighter, and I would help him in a manner that was very much like Robin working with Batman. Perhaps Batman was that type of fantasy for a lot of kids. I know there's talk about a homosexual element in Batman, but what if it isn't homosexuality? What if the fantasy is the expression of kids wishing their dads were Batman and they were Robin? I think that's a stronger fantasy than the sexuality of Batman and Robin. I imagine millions of kids believe in this fantasy, and that's why Robin had endured for so long. The fact that a child can read Batman and think of him as a father is both charming and disturbing at the same time. A son joins his father in fighting crime, yet he knows Batman will protect Robin, and maybe vice versa. 
Looking back now, it's, a it's evident that as a Robin, I didn't protect my dad in the end. <clears throat> and that is the essence of the whole book. That was that's one of the longer chapters in the book as well. Would you it say? is because my chapter my chapters are very short. The, the book is uh, well. First of all, uh, Tosh is one of my dearest friends. I love him, and um, he uh, has. Uh, well, you could, you could. I could definitely. I can feel the moment. I can see the moment um, when my life, when you entered my life, how it changed, uh, even physically. Just the things I began to be sur surrounded by. We t sharing music with each other, books yes. with each other, yes. stories with each other, walking yes. around. Yes. And um, uh, I was looking around today just at my house and uh, just looking, oh, I got that with Tosh, that with Tosh. That. And <laughs> it was such a nice, um, you are literally a part of my, of my life. And so it's an honor to do this and I hope that it's all right. Um, Not really. It really is. <laughs> What's that? that? There's some problems, but oh, we will okay. okay. I know. Don't. It's whatever. <laughs> um, I'm going to start with a very simple question, but I am mm -hmm. curious. Why, why now did you decide to to write a, 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 a memoir? Well, first, it took me 10 years to write this book, Tosh. And I, I wrote it because a gentleman by the name of Terry Lauren from Detroit was editing a, um, a special art journal online at the time. And uh, Carrie Lauren was part of uh, the group or, or art collective called Destroy All Monsters with um, Mike Kelly and Jim Shaw. And Carrie Lauren was the other the power trio person. And he came up to me uh, at the time to ask if I would write something about my father. And at the time, it was sort of totally unthinkable that I would even think of writing anything about my life or my family in that sense. Why? Uh, because I was sort of taught by my father not to write about my f the family, really, in a, in a certain aspect. And it wasn't like a law type of thing, but just something that I was not encouraged to share with, um, with, with you. So when you leave, don't tell anybody that I'm here <laughs> talking to you. But, mm -hmm. it's, uh, but when I wrote this 1,000-word piece for the, for the website, I really enjoyed the process of writing, and I really liked the writing. And also, more important to me at the time, was the feedback for that piece. Hmm. I got really positive feedback from individuals that I respected at the time, uh, who I don't like anymore right now. But 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 I bet at the t but it was really it was it was it was a great experience for me to to actually do the writing and then getting that feedback, and I started writing the book seriously, right after that point. But were it, but the memories and the things, that, uh, the stories, in the book were they all there, in your in your head as your and you just been waiting to write them or what is it like the process of? Uh, I believe so. I mean in a. In a sense, my childhood is the most, most vivid part of my life so far. And it's the w it, it stands out more than anything else than my adulthood, for instance. Though, uh, definitely as an adult, I find great, you know, great importance and enjoyment and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely that my childhood had such a livid stamp on my memory and my who I am that I still, to this day, feel like a child 
like for instance, I'm probably way older than a lot of people here, but I still feel like a child in front of all of you. So that has never gone away. I still feel like a kid or a child. And I think, it, of course, it came from my childhood and uh, how I see myself. And I basically see myself as this, you know, this, 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 this character in this book that hasn't changed at all. Was there a step that you wrote about this period that's not in the book that you decided to remove? Th there's people I left out that I'm surprised I left out because they were important in my life. But, um, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of like first thought is the best thought in a sense, and I just worked on that, those, those thoughts. I very rarely added new memories or if I did write about somebody else, I feel like I'm being sort of forcing that person mm. into the narrative of the book, and I didn't want to do that. I want to sort of a more organic process. I, I, the book, I think it's, the chapters are very, they're great because it says chapter three and then parentheses what the chapter's about, which is great, mm -hmm. I think. Um, they're short, they, and it's funny because that they, they feel, uh, I feel when I read it, I don't know how to articulate this, but that it's not uh, you, this Tosh, um, telling me these stories. I feel like it's uh, you at that age, like you managed to, be the age I feel when I'm reading, almost like it's a diary of the of the time. I mean, it was a very intimate feeling. It didn't feel like um, you're writing from a distance. No distance. I mean, again, my memory of, of those years, my childhood years and teenage So years. I was right about that. Yes. <laughs> you get an A for that. No, 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 there's eight more, eight but plus. that's pretty good so far. Okay. Eight <coughs> that's eight a, that was a true false. And okay. But it's, um, it's, again, my childhood is more prominent in my life. And also, uh, I'm very fortunate to have been photographed by my father at a certain age for a certain time. Mm. So when people see me, they think of me at that age. I mean, I, I think the identity of Tosh is very much me as, as a teenager or as a, as a child. As I don't think, many people think of me as an adult. I mean, I don't think there's people <laughs> that think of me. If, if I was a, an actor, I would be getting roles as a child, I think, even, <laughs> even though I'm 64 years old, I think I would get a, you know. But you were, you were, but the, but the, the you, you were around adults really more than children. Yes. I, you know, I mean, in the book, you're, you're taken out and um, you're just a part of, of your parents' lives. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that I think is uh, great. Yeah. Um, but what did you feel like? Did you feel like a child when you were a child? Yes. Or did you feel like uh, you did? Yes, absolutely. I feel like definitely a child. But very, very much so. But, but you were, but you were included with. You were the only child typically with all these yes. adults. Yes. I would go, for instance, like. like uh, you, didn't, you didn't get you. Yeah. For, for instance, I'll be taken to an event like this, and I'll be a child, and I'll either sit in my mom's lap or. <laughs> Wendy's laugh maybe, but nevertheless, I'm I'm at the presence with adults for adults, and not a kids event. I, I have mm -hmm. very little memory of going to childhood <laughs> events, or child right. parties, or children parties. I remember mostly all my thoughts are exclusively about going to gallery openings or going to like you know Marcel Duchamp's opening at the Pasadena Museum. Yeah, or um, that's a great story, which uh, you and but but. I have no, I, I really didn't, I, as I'm my only child, so mm -hmm. I really didn't spend that much time with other children. 
nor did I had a need to spend time with children. You were ki- or kids. Yeah, but you, but you'd be with adults. But would you? Did you feel I can ask? I would like to ask a question. I didn't understand what that conversation, or were you always just sort of observe from a distance? I had to be quiet. And now being quiet meant I was not told like you must be quiet. It's just basically by the 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 mood of the room or the or the essence of the environment. I I'm a child in an adult surroundings or setting, so therefore I cannot be a kid doing kid stuff really in in adult world. I can't like be running up like right now as a child I could not be running like crazy around here and do that, that I could sit down there mm-hmm. and be a proper <laughs> young gentleman. Would you be interested in this discussion? I no, mean, not this I literally. This I'd probably be, <laughs> or would you be? I'd probably be looking what you're wearing and thinking about Please. your shoes and my shoes <laughs> and so. looking in the audience and, and like thinking, oh, that's a pretty girl over there. Is a child or something? Well, I'm just so curious. Like, but like, mm-hmm. I, I am like uh, just cu- so curious about like what you were aware of at the time. You know, like you met Marcel Duchamp, or you, you're just you know you're. You ha- the way you describe things, like your your relationship to reality, mm-hmm. is a. Uh this is my relation with Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> huh? I went to this opening. Everybody was dressed really nicely. It was kind of a formal affair. When Duchamp, or Marcel, as we like to call him, <laughs> was in a room, his presence was very strong in that room. So all the people in that room were totally sort of focused on this presence of Marcel Duchamp. Mm-hmm. And at the time, at the room. It's you know it's not Marcel Duchamp as we know him in the 21st century. At the time, he was still like an underground cultish figure, and only artists liked Marcel Duchamp. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like you know it's sort of like like if I use a music, it's like Sid Barrett's in the room. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, Sid Barrett's mm-hmm. in the room. And if you're a musician, you, you know, but if it's like Roger Waters, going, oh, it's Roger Waters, you know, right. Roger. But but, Mar- but, Mar- but, but Marcel Duchamp <laughs> was such an incredible presence for other artists at the time, not for the general audience. You know, general yeah. audience. But to me, I knew he was French, and that made a huge impression on me because he was a foreigner, and the French was always kind of a glamorous picture of somebody at the time. And second, um, I knew he was an artist, and he made a sculpture. It was a bicycle wheel. And as a child, the bicycle wheel is so common for a ch- for any child. I mean, I didn't ride a bike at all, mm-hmm. but I know people had bicycles, and I've s- seen bicycles in comic strips and books, and you know. So his bicycle wheel had a huge impression on me, and seeing the bicycle wheel on a stool mm. meant a lot to me because I know I totally understood the piece. It's a bicycle wheel, right? And I was like. And it had such a profound effect on me that it's a bicycle wheel. As a child, I know it's a bicycle wheel. And that's all I cared about. I didn't think about is this art or not art or ironic piece of work or a ready-made or, the, you know, or, you know the, the theories or the background. I just know it as a bicycle wheel. Right. And I loved it as a bicycle wheel. Right. Um, and it was my memory that it was a very nice bicycle wheel. It was a very, very nice. Have you seen it since? Have you seen it since? 
No, but you've seen so many pictures of it. Right. You know, that's another thing because my my parents, my dad would have a photograph of the bicycle wheel on his studio wall or somewhere in the household. So I knew the bicycle wheel. Yeah, I didn't know the urinal too much. I mean, I had a, we had a toilet at home. We didn't have like the male urinal, so I did, that didn't mean anything to me. Or the shovel. I never worked. I never liked. <laughs> I, that didn't mean nothing to me, but the bicycle wheel. But but you're but it was incredible. And he incredible he knelt team. down and shook your hand, right? Huh? He came down and shook your hand, right? He did. He I he he I think it was Walter Hops, who was the curator of the the shop show and a very prominent person. And he introduced Marcel Duchamp to my mom, my dad, and to me. And Marcel Duchamp met sort of. Uh, Monsieur Perot, <laughs> the very sort of polite, just bent down and smiled and shook my hand. This is a, a convoluted question. And it's in the same hand, I touched Elvis Presley's hand by shaking his hand. It's not in the book, <laughs> but, but from Marcel Duchamp to Elvis Presley, it happened. Not in the same room. Uh, not the same, not the same room, but the same city, you know, Los Angeles, yeah, here. Southern California. <laughs> um, have you ever been starstruck? Um, not starstruck, that's a good question. Yes, I've been starstruck in the sense of uh, one of our oldest friends is Billy Gray, who's an actor who was in a show called Fathers Knows Best. It was a huge show in the 50s and early 60s, and he played Bud. And I can't remember to be exact if we knew Billy when the show was happening or afterwards, but Fathers Knows Best was repeated on a consistent basis on TV. So when I watched TV, I realized that's Billy, our friend, and I could not really distinguish between Bud and Billy at all. Hmm. I mean, it, se it seemed to be the same, same person, the same character. And the second time that I was starstruck, well not, that's not starstruck, that's just sort of the perception the of somebody yeah. real on TV. And I mentioned earlier that um, we had a dog named Rover, and I would watch Lassie. And my dog would sit in front of the TV set watching Lassie, whenever Lassie's on, <laughs> And he, and he would like look, when Lassie's barking, you know, he'd sort of cock his head. And then he went back to the TV set, <laughs> trying to logically figure out is Lassie in the TV set. Yeah. So in that sense, I thought of Billy being in the TV set and sort of I look in the back of the set. Well, now. you do in the book that you talk, <laughs> like there is like a, uh, you, use the, you have an admiration almost for, the, for things that have an artifice or yes. that are, that are or the, ar the, the or the what's artificial and what's true. <coughs> um, yes. The other person, one I was, I was starstruck as a child was the Rolling Stones. You know, it was a huge thing, and then eventually I met I met Mick Jagger at the Tammy show through uh, through my dad. But at the at the run through, but of uh, the Tammy show. But then yes, that's what's uh, more the, yeah, amazing is yes. that it wasn't the actual Tammy. The dress rehearsal. It was before you were like yeah. one of the. People my there. father, I was with my father with a dress rehearsal. We were invited to stay at the Tammy show, but uh, my dad didn't want to stay for the show. It wasn't fine. Why not? Um, we saw it. You already saw it. He was not, I, for some reason, he was not interested in seeing the, sh the whole show. I don't know why. But oddly enough, I mean, it's going to go into about my dad's work. He, he had an eight millimeter camera with him always at that time, and he would shoot just whatever he finds interesting. And he had the camera at the rehearsals, and this is before copyright or being, you know, he could have shot anything he wanted there. Right. And he didn't. 
And it wasn't until the Tammy movie, the Tammy show was like a rock and roll variety show in the early 60s. And it was taped, filmed at the Santa Monica Civic. And it was like the Supremes, the Stones, James Brown uh, did a famous, incredible performance. Beach Boys. Beach Boys. All and in one day. All in one day. One time. <laughs> and um, my dad, we went to the see when the movie came out. It was a film concert. When the movie came out in the movie theater, we saw it in the movie theater, and my dad filmed it from the t from the movie screen. So mm. it's interesting the fact that wow. he could have filmed it there. Filmed in the person, real one, but he but he actually preferred the distance of right. of that world through you know like a filter in a but way. But I feel that when you write in the book, you talk about like your relations, like you are in every moment of the book, and yet you are at a distance from it. I know you're writing it at a distance, but it seemed like you were at a distance. That's what you're describing, at least. Is that correct? I mean, did yeah. you that's another right one? Okay. I do feel, <laughs> I think maybe because I'm the only child, or just, I, you know, I, I feel distant from things more than I feel close to something. Mm -hmm. And this comes to getting starstruck. I met Brian Jones, who became a good friend of my, my parents. And Brian Jones, in case you know, was one of the, the key figures of the Rolling Stones in the 60s and died in the late 60s. And I remember seeing him, and it's like, I couldn't believe, like he was in our living room, our, our room, you know, you know, we just had a room, uh, and he looked exactly like he walked off the back cover of the Aftermath album. Black turtlenecks, white jeans, and white pants, and like uh, sort of desert shoes. Right. And I'm thinking, God, he looks exactly like his photograph. Like he looks like Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. And sometimes when you meet somebody famous, there's always something, you know, like a pimple, or there's something, you know, right. look, they look real. Or they have a stage persona. Or yeah, but Brian Jones looked exactly like Brian Jones. How old were you when that happened? Like 10 years old or nine. But I was very impressed how somebody could be that way. Like, how did he jump out of the, how did he physically get off the <laughs> album cover into the right. living room? It was like a Twilight Zone type of episode. Were the pants very tight? I'm always, I was, I'm always curious when I see photos of very tight pants. I did look at the crotch area, I remember, <laughs> but I don't recall anything. I mean, but were people <laughs> skinnier and tighter then? He I mean, do you feel that as no. a rock star? So was there I a felt tightness? The I felt the skinny part came in the 70s. Skinnier in the 70s. Yes. He didn't, he struck me as a, a very, um, well built, well made <laughs> figure. Well, more made. Huh? He's yeah. He was Very well made. And the haircut yeah. was perfect. I mean, everything was like so incredibly perfect. Um, it was amazing. But but and and then you but this relationship to fakeness and Los Angeles because that's a big to me the book really is. I'm from L.A. and I you're from L.A. and I'm from Los Angeles. Los Angeles. <laughs> but and in. Um, but there's Los Angeles, San Francisco, London. Um, Larkspur. Yes. And each city or town. It is really is a character in the. It's a strong character in, in my in my book, very much so, very strong. A and but your but your Los Angeles upbringing is always back. Like I love when we walk around and you say, "Oh, that used to be that. That used mm -hmm. to be that." But as a kid, it, when I was reading the book, I realized, "Oh, you were." You were in Los Angeles, but you were a bit more uh, isolated. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, you were in Topanga Canyon. Yes. But you were in Topanga Canyon, and it was 40 minutes 
to get to thirty minutes to forty minutes to get out of the canyon. You have basically two lanes going in and out of the canyon. So you're between Malibu, Santa Monica, and then you're then you have Woodland Hills on the other side. You know San Fernando Valley, and um, it's canyon areas are very interesting to me because it's a very restricted area. It's a very you know you're sort of trapped between these two worlds. I never felt like Topanga or any canyon is the world. It's felt like I'm a bridge between two mm. cultures or two societies. And I did not like, as a teenager, I did not like Topanga. Really? Mm. Because... Hot. Too hot and, and, and dusty. It was dusty. I mean, that's what... It was, to tell you the truth, it's, like it's, it's, it's a secluded culture. It's, at the time, it was like the whole hippie thing was exploding, and I think the whole hippie culture world was at its strongest and at its greatest probably like for a few months. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, it became like a, a, a thing or a fad or, or people with deep problems or attached to mm -hmm. that culture. And Topanga, to me, conveyed the sour side of the 60s. And you know, there's people like Charles Manson and Topanga and stuff like that as well. But let's, but your, I what I love in the beginning of the book, you talk about your father and music being so important to him, mm -hmm. and then really it becomes then at the towards the end of the book, it's all about you becoming a, a you know a teenager and how much music meant to you. Mm -hmm. But it was glam. It was not. Yeah, there it was. A, you were put off in a way by the. Hippie, right? I mean, it w you escaped yes. musically. I escaped. Music has always been my escape or my uh, portal to another world or somewhere. But Not a better life, but a more interesting life. You don't me. like qu Queen, though. You talk about that. I've been criticized for not liking Queen in this book by many people. I think due to that well, movie. Because that of the came book, out. people who've read the books. Yeah, I actually got some <laughs> nasty commentary. They don't like that. They don't like that you don't like Queen. Nothing personal against Queen, but they're really a terrible band. <coughs> <laughs> you would. Well, when I mean, you. I mean, for God's sake, I mean, it's so obvious. But if you are, you know, you're surrounded by, uh, growing up, you were surrounded by uh, a life of, um, you know, where art was a major nutrient or, yes. or, the, or beauty and. and as you then become a teenager, how w were you extra snobby? Like I don't know how to say this, but <laughs> how do you? Because what I what I always like, you are the most e excited and adventurous person that I know. You're always looking for for more and new music and new books. You're always on to something. I'm I'm really hungry, right now. Yeah, right, I mean, I'm really oh. hungry for food. But, <laughs> but I mean, right. but you, but I could see, like, in my head, I guess I would think, oh, the, a person who was treated, um, well, who was treated like a kid, but with all the adults, mm -hmm. and ex and uh, and invited to be, mm -hmm. who was welcome, how you didn't become, a, like, oh, you know, that, how you still remain interested in, in, in things, that you're still open to things. A lot of people would be like, I don't know, I'm not, I, uh, I well, saw that in real life, the wheel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for example, I really, I had certain tastes as a child and as a teenager, but my father had a more advanced 
was he had a more he had a more he had really great taste and he had a great antenna for he was four there. years older than you that's <laughs> to be expected <laughs> but it's he not that it's, years experience. it's but it's more he had an understanding of uh of uh like for instance you know he brought in like the you know the first velvet underground album to the household and to me that was like weird stuff i mean the song called heroin yeah you know, like well, I was like 10, or ten years old, 11 years old. And it's something as a, as a child or early teenager I couldn't like get into. Did you feel, by the way, can I just cut mm. you off? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, did you feel uncomfortable in those moments? No. And, and you talk in the book too about someone injected heroin in front of you. Well, that's different. But Yes. <laughs> but heroin, I, the song, and somebody injecting yeah. heroin. But, it, but, but, but uh, well, did you ever feel uh, scared? Uh, no, you always felt safe. Yes. That's a... I feel very sec- I feel very secure, very safe, in a sort of cocoon. Nice, very. You know, my family is very structured. There's a yeah. mom, there's a father, had grandparents. Where a lot of people in Topanga were, you know, single moms who had a, you know, boyfriend, biker boyfriend, or drug dealer, <laughs> biker boyfriend, bass player. You know, <laughs> and and so there's a sort of wilderness. You know, I felt I felt among all these ruffians. I felt like I was Oscar Wilde. <laughs> yeah, you were. I had my velvet jacket on, yeah. my flower. Yeah. Centered the room with, you know, something flowery. But, but and, and then when you, when you, and then when you got your car, you had music, you would drive mm-hmm. people around. That is, the, were you always a sharer? Were you always a, a cu- into yes. curating a, a, a moment in a way? To this very moment, I'm still a sharer. And you know, the one thing I like about school, the only thing I like about school is show and tell. Hmm. Where I think even first grade or kindergarten, when you take something from home and you show it to to the public or to your fellow students, I love that. I love bringing a record, book, picture, whatever it was at the time. And to this day, you know, I started, um, you know, I started a press called Tam Tam Books, and really, it's nothing more than show and tell. Right. That's all it is. It's like somebody I discovered, and I just want to share that information with other people. Not really out of, um, um, I just have a need to share a certain types of information. Not all information, but, right. you know, like there's a guy named Boris Dion I became totally obsessed with, and I just want to share that experience of, of Dion's yeah. work to, to readers and the public. Um, what I just going to, oh, but there's a story in the book that I don't fully, well, may, I don't understand, but. It's the limited edition story. Do you want to? Can you just talk about that for oh one the second? Com- what limited mm-hmm. comic book thing? The stamps on the comic yeah. books. <laughs> I'm I'm curious. I don't. I need there's to a lot of water there's, water to, there's a there's a lot of levels to that story. There's a lot of levels. Um, As a child, I had a comic book collection, and it's not as serious as other people's collections, but it nevertheless was my collection. It was serious to you. To me. Bless and you. And at the time, I think... Again, bless you. <laughs> and I think it was That's Marvel good. Comics. It was Marvel Comics I was into. It was probably like when I was 12, 13, 14, something like that. So I became sort of obsessed, like, you know, if I'm going to get one, of course I have to have issue number two, and of course issue number three. And even though number four sort of sucks or not interesting, I had to complete it, you know, so I kept going on mm-hmm. and on. So I had a a good inventory of comics, but not crazy, insane amount, but a good, honorable collection. 
strong. Curated. Strong. Curated collection. Yeah. Strong. And one day I came to, you know, I was in my, I was in Tepeng Canyon. I went to um, my room to do inventory of my comic book collection. Because you have to do that with really? collections and yes. You were making sure it was all. Well, to make sure it's right. revisit to revisit the, ex what, the right. experience of having right. number one with number two is so great, and then three, and I had piles. Yes. So I looked in the top of the pile, and I noticed on the cover was a stamped collector's item, and I thought, not like from the magazine itself, but you know, it's actually stamped collector's item. Then I looked. The one below that, collector's item. And I went, and then below that, collector's item. And then I sort of took the pile, you know, and then I, collector's item. And then I went to the very bottom, like number one, stamp collector's item. And then I looked in the drawer, we had a, I had a drawer, and I looked in the drawer, and like, you know, sort of secret stash, unclassified <laughs> comics, and not mm -hmm. really been put in inventory yet, or mm -hmm. collector's item. Mm. So I'm getting kind of creeped. I mean, it was very creepy. It was yeah. like, like a toy something. And I think, because handprint, every, and I realized every comic book I had in my room and elsewhere, stamped, collector's Legendary. item. So I was like kind of, I, was it really, uh, it's like, it was really it was scary. I you was were like scared. scared. I was very scared. Because <laughs> every one was stamped, collector's item. So I, my dad was, my dad was, my dad was always home. My dad was there in the, in downstairs, reading a newspaper, I remember. And I said, Dad, something I have to talk to you about something. I'm really, this is something really serious right now. So I tapped, you know, I tapped his shoulder to get his attention, you know. And he looked, he, he didn't, he looked, you know, did this. <coughs> and he looked at what? And on his forehead was collector's item. <laughs> <laughs> and what was, and, and then what was the moment after that? I, I didn't have a magazine collection anymore. I mean, I didn't. I did. I, I I sold it or I traded. I traded. I traded all my comics. Why? Because I felt at the time like it didn't. It didn't like it ruined the collection. It sort of brought out how ridiculous it is to have a collection of something with no possession, right? Possession. It's it's terrible. But it's ter it's to possess something like a collection of comic books is meaningless and stupid. <laughs> stupid. But was that what it was? Was that it? Do you feel like it was to it was to the lesson and collect? Don't to me, that comic book collection was very important. Yeah. So, but I totally took the the, the, the opinion that it was all pointless. You know, it became like sort of a Herman Hesse character, this sort of like Siddhartha, you know, living. But it struck me as funny because he he did, right. he did these really strong crazy practical jokes like that. He actually went with a hand stamp and collected, and when I was not there, went every comic book and stamped. Yeah, that's a lot of effort. <laughs> a lot of effort. And to put it back like it had never been touched, yes. by the way. Yes, he did. This thing. He did. So it's, so the time <laughs> that he spent doing that, and then I thought maybe it's like a signal, maybe it's like a, like a sort of, my dad never said do not do this or do not do right. that. He left things up in the air a lot. So, because didn't, we didn't ever had discussions of sorts like, Son, you should not collect these comic books. They're taking space. You never sat down and talked about much, never. ever. Well, we talked, not in that sense, no. Right. But we never discussed why he did that. Like, was it funny? Was he trying to teach me something? And that duality is something I sort of live with and sort of I had to understand or not understand. 
And I didn't have a carnival question afterwards. Have but you collected any? Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yes. But when you get back in the book, I mentioned, see, I don't make a lot of obvious, when you read the whole book, you don't find pathways and roads. Yeah. He had a, uh, a collection, as a teenager, he had a collection of View Magazine, mm -hmm. which View Magazine was the official surrealist uh, publication uh, uh, in English uh, from uh, surrealists who moved to New York from, from the war years, and they had their own publication. And my dad had a complete View magazine collection, which was obviously very important. At what me. age that was? Probably when he was a teenager, like 16, 17. So similar. Yeah, and his, his mother, my grandmother, threw it out. And I suspect, I know he was totally upset about it. I mean, I just got that feeling that it was not a good thing that happened. So I think somehow, I think my combo collection drew him. The, the View Magazine combo collection was a similar situation to him. And I think it's not like, okay, since I lost my view magazine, therefore I'm going to destroy my son's combo collection. I don't think it was that obvious thinking, but I think for him, he had to live without the view magazine, and maybe he thought, maybe I don't need the comic book collection? I don't know. His possessions, could you, were they precious to him? Uh, did, he like, did he collect things? He did not. He no, not not in that sense. He didn't collect. Did anything. you have you collected? You're not really. I started collecting vinyl again recently, so yeah. I'm reliving my childhood again because I'm not grown up. So <laughs> I'm still reliving my you know my my childhood. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, I go keep going. What? Uh, okay. What? What? Can I ask one more question? Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> my was now what was the question? Limited edition. Well, because I always remember you told me a story once. I said. I had like left something in a wrapper for a long period mm -hmm. of time, and I said oh, I'm afraid to, I I'm afraid to ruin it, but then once it gets ruined, I don't I, I kind of love it, mm -hmm. and then you said this and it kind of really affected my life where you where you talked about um, the mudslide in mm -hmm. your home and, and things being taken away. Yes, I, I, I we had a mudslide in our home when I was like uh, ten, right two days after Christmas. So we had a mudslide that destroyed everything. So the 29th. <laughs> yeah, 29th. Maybe <laughs> the 28th, actually. Uh, no. And I lost ev we lost everything. I had not, I mean, I was only, the only thing I had was what I was wearing and what was in my pocket at the time. So I did suffer a great deal of um, physical loss. So, yes. And then when you were a teenager, you got your, the garage became your apartment. Many <laughs> years later, and yes. And you did have like a back, I mean, it was it was, like a, it was a back cave. layer. Uh, or, yes. And you weren't, but you, did you feel like I'm on my own now? I have my own? Not totally on my own because I was still part of my parents' house, but I feel right. like this is my private space. It's similar to what everybody feels about their room, but I had a more romantic view of my room. I had a more romantic aspect of what that room consisted Did you have a record player in your room? I did. Bad room, yeah. Bad, bad room? A cocktail in a bar. You, know. you had a cocktail bar? <laughs> I think I made wine or something. You do there. talk about wine bottles being lined up on a thing. Yeah, and well, you know. Um, well, well, I could keep asking you a million questions, but, um, you, but you, I'm should, we, should we ask the audience? Do you have yes. a question? Yes. No. I have not asked you. I haven't asked you yet properly <laughs> yet. But do you have a question? Hmm? Yeah. Got one down here, Todd. <laughs> 
as a child, it was probably like a favorite book, a childhood book of sorts. Um, it could have been a record at the time. I purchased, I started buying records when I was like 10 years old, you know, allowance money or money that my grandmother gave me. So it's more like it probably was a book or a record. It could have been a toy, something like that. No, no, never, no, never. It was always a child. It was always a, it was a childhood children's book stuff. Yes. Yes. Ever all above. Yes. <laughs> you lose if you're going around the curve. But yeah. Um, yeah, uh, one is through the radio, like KHA, KRLA. Um, and then, like, when I was a, as a teenager, K KMET, it was like, you know, underground radio. And then what my parents or my dad brought into the household, and again, he brought, like, the Velvet Underground, the first Bugs album, Captain Beefheart's Foul Mouse replica. Is that frustrating? In a way, because when you're a teenager and music and you becomes your, you, you want like your own, like to have someone else bringing in really brand new, cutting edge uh, music. He had a, he just had a really I mean, he had a very he has a very venturesome taste in music, and I remember him you know, playing Bitches Brew by Miles Davis. We had an eight track in our car, and he would blast Bitches Brew, and I thought, what in the hell is this? What what is this? You know, it's like I couldn't relate to it at all at the time. But now, all the records that he brought in, decades later, I have grown to love and appreciate. <laughs> yeah. um, I think people don't by my father. All, I have about 60 photographs in this book. It's not one section, it's like throughout the book. And 99.9% uh, .9 is all taken by Wallace. And it's a lot of family pictures of, uh, a lot of family pictures of, uh, of my grandparents and people like that. But most, a lot of, them of me as a child. Yes. I just remember the fights and the violence and the sex. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, sort of the, the children prostitution yeah. thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. You talk, yeah. You know, the pedophile parties. And <laughs> no. That's, that's my favorite chapter. <laughs> my, par my parents had parties when I was a baby they, or very young. They had parties a lot in the Beverly Glen house. But it's always been um, more of a record listening party or just drinking wine. It was not like crazy, wild, decadent. Interesting people coming through and talking to each other. But it was a very, I won't say sophisticated, but it was a very, um, it was a proper attendance of interesting people. I was too young. I'll tell you, my first memory was being in a, we, uh, the house in Beverly Glen was very small. It was like a, it was a one room. I had a bedroom being a child, and then the bathroom and a, a kitchen, and that's it. And as a child, my first memory as a child 
was, uh, you know, uh, the way I was positioned, I could see the window outside. I saw there'd be a party in the other room, I hear noise, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not a baby. And I remember seeing, looking at the window and seeing a, a face coming up slowly from the back of the window and had blood on it. And it was like he was just pulling himself on the, on the window shell very slowly and oh. I didn't see it. So that's my first memory. Ever of life. And for me it is. Wow. And it's, it, was, it was, that person was rambling Jack Elliott who was a, uh, a, a well-known folk singer and um, portrait bohemian artist of sorts. Did he fall? Was he, wh I think he was happened? drinking and he fell, uh, he fell outside. But he fell and then he kind of picked himself up either drunk or just hurt himself and ble he was bleeding. He was outside by himself and he fell. Well, there's probably other people out there, but. But he chose my windowsill to. <laughs> Can I ask one really silly question? I swear, but I hope it's not too personal while we're talking about your memoir. But yeah. uh, nowadays, like especially like when I'm with my wife or children, if we have like uh, a, a disagreement or something, we need to. There's like an effort to, let's. You know, there's uh, let, let's not talk about this now. You know, a certain, in a house in that situation. How much. Were you aware of your parents' relationship? No, that's a good question. Now, tell you, in a small house, I didn't really notice anything like tension or. or uh, they worked perfectly well together. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it. <laughs> I never seen this person in my life. <laughs> No, but I, 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 you know, there might have been arguments and stuff, mm -hmm. you know, and when you hear arguments, it's always upsetting for a child. Right. But, but nothing, but usually the next day it's, you know, you don't remember. More questions? Any more questions? Oh, yeah. I never made art. And uh, my dad's first studio space was that one room in Beverly Glen, which is a cabin, which is served with a sleeping space and this social space. So he had like the left side was like his workspace. And then um, only when we went to Larkspur, which was a houseboat, he had like a, like a, there's like a, like a really funky storage space. And that was like his dark room and studio. And then when we moved to Topanga, my apartment, <laughs> before it became an apartment, yeah. he worked in the garage of the studio. And then later he built his own studio, next, next property over. But uh, I spent a great deal of time with him, helping him or in the presence while he was doing his artwork on a consistent basis. He pretty much took care of me because my mom worked during the days and my dad took care of me um, in the daytime. So that means being in the presence of my father as he worked. Was he regimented? I, well just because his, uh, his workspace was at your home, mm -hmm. uh, I'm just, it gets blurry, the lines between when you're working and not working. He seems to be always working. Always, yeah. Yeah, so it's always, I mean, it's not like a 10 to 5 type of situation, but he always did work. He always, he was always working on his own. But you always could talk. You didn't feel like. Yeah, but sometimes I'm not talking. I'm sitting there watching him do his work. Right. And I'm sometimes helping him. I help him hold a frame or help him. I was a DJ, you know, I put the records on and 
he one thing he would do is play music over and I over think again. Music is, yeah. And not like he played forty five singles. Like I think he liked that format because it's the perfect song, you know, A side. It's gotta be perfect. And he's always looking for the perfect image for his hand, you know, wedge, you know, the radio transmitter. And the translator radio. And so what I would do is play something like you lost that loving feeling, not once or twice, but we were talking like thirty times in a row. And I would play <laughs> like the King's Blues Mexican line over and over and over again. Would you get lost in that space too? Yeah, you do. It becomes almost meditative. At first it gets kind of, for me it got annoying, but then it just becomes this sort of like a noise, background noise. Can you look at the art and separate it from the music or no? Well, for him, I think it's a way for him to focus on the artwork. And what, what, you know, he loved working with music and it just, it was, he also played uh, Paul Bowles' um, recordings of Moroccan musicians, yeah. and which are very chanting and very hypnotic. So I think all, even like, a Phil Spector record was used in the same format. It was like there's a very hypnotic yeah. background work from. Well, I don't have any more questions, and I know that you do. <laughs> do you feel like your father had the same, as a result of had some weird childhood trauma, that you felt that weird? Excuse me? Oh, so you his childhood? Your father's result had, had, a, had some sort of connection to his childhood self that made him do that? No. <laughs> no, I. I I think his I think his childhood was totally different. I mean, very very much different. He didn't come from a really artistic background. I think he's more uh, working class, or you know, um, his family came from Russia, so it's a totally different environment and landscape. He pretty much discovered aesthetics and art through his love of jazz music and his love of Black American culture in Los Angeles, and and his in him going to the library in downtown and picking up poetry and he got turned on by that. When you would talk about art or music, could you be, could you guys disagree with each other? Oh, I, no, because no, we, we never you had agree. discussions like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't have any more questions except oh, okay. I love you, yeah. I have, I wrote a book of poetry called The Plum is, oh. I, I, want, I wanted to plug, I wanted to plug my book. Okay. <laughs> you don't know if I'm still writing poetry. I'm not at the moment. I feel I wrote the perfect poetry book for me, yes. But thank you. Why go on? Why do volume two? And then the other question about mystic. Yeah. No, but to me it was my dad. I didn't pick a mystic dad mystic mystic thing at all but I know other people want him to be mystic or they felt a mystical presence in him but I think that's them projecting their feelings towards him yeah I think about 10 years old 11, 10 or 9 something like that well, I tell you, it was not scary. So it, was, it was scary, but it was truly what happened. Really, we were in the house. We're, it was me and my mom. It was pouring rain. We heard like a strange sound back of the house, so we just walked out, and then the whole house like just went splinters, splinters. And the loss of losing everything in that one instant was horrifying. But also something I learned even after my father died, what happens afterwards. It's like when that house got destroyed, many people came on the property looking for, for things to take mm. in front of us. It's sort of like it's open, like it's got destroyed, so we can pick up whatever we want from here. So there was no guilty feeling or no 
it was really strange feeling having people go over your property and and going picking stuff in it. So I learned a lesson. Was that before or after the comic book book? <laughs> after comic book. Yes, or losing my father. I have one last question for you. <laughs> what are you reading now or listening to now that you'd like to share with everyone that's like a recommendation? Uh, Vic Damone's Greatest Hits. <laughs> I, find it, I find it the missing link between Scott Walker and Jack Jones. And um, Stravinsky's um, very minor work that nobody knew. He did a disco record. A really <laughs> disco record. Come great. on. So they did. How I is it? Is it uh, was for the it was for the Ballet Rouge. So, oh, wow. so yes, it was. It's like an early disco record that yeah. him and Picasso put together. Wow. And I, I'm the only one who has a copy of this, so it's, very, it's, it's quite explicit. Oh. Can can I hear it? No. <laughs> it's very too special. Um, well, thank you so much, you guys. I thank you for coming, and Tosh, thank you for writing this book. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, all right. Who's next? Who do I interview next? Who's next? Who's next? Bring on the next writer. Next guy. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.